Well, there are a lot of good and exciting things in store, we pray, uh, in this new year for us as a church. And uh, I know, realize Timothy said at the beginning, but college students, those of you who are kind of coming back in uh, for the start of the year, we're really glad you're here. We really are a church that wants to welcome and love those of you who are going through this season of your life and uh, embrace the university and uh, that the multiple universities surround where we are. And so if you are a college student, we have presents for you that are outside on a table. Please grab one just as a way for us to say thanks for being here. And if there's ways that we can come alongside and, uh, and love you, we would love uh, to do that as a church. Uh, but uh, we've been announcing all the things that are kind of rolling out for this new year. Uh, the addition of Aaron being one. Armin Law is starting a youth group uh, this uh, fall here in a few weeks for fourth grade and above. Uh, as Timothy mentioned, our city groups are kind of launching throughout the whole region. I think we have 18 city groups this year. Uh, we're offering the spiritual formation class uh, that I'm really, really excited about to really create a, a culture of formation and discipleship within this church. And we're continuing to grow in our engagement in the city with our outreach initiatives and things that are coming uh, down, the, down the pipe on those things. And so there's a lot to, to look forward to, a lot uh, that we can dream about and pray for. And I got away this summer and spent a lot of time doing so. And it's easy as a pastor uh, to get up here and want to talk about all the things we want to accomplish, right? all the things we want to do uh, in and, and through uh, this church to the city. But there's one word that I pray would be a chief characteristic of Christ Central Church. And that's the word repentant, repentant. I'm going to explain why that's the case this morning. Here's my attempt at defining repentance. Repentance is a humble surrender that delights in all that the Lord has done for us, which then leads us to seek God's honor and glory in all that we do. Repeat that. Repentance is a humble surrender that delights in all that the Lord has done for us, which then leads us to seek God's honor and God's glory in all that we do. This is chief among my prayers for myself, for you, and for us. And so this morning, as we are gearing into this new year, I want us to look at a beautiful portrait of repentance out of a somewhat well-known psalm, Psalm 51. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as is our custom, reading God's word. This is God's word to us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. 
and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would, by your spirit, cause your word to disrupt our often calloused hearts, to break up what for us can oftentimes be just the monotony of our life. Would you disrupt us by your spirit with the goodness of who you are, with the joy that is offered in Christ? Would you lead us to repentance, God, individually, personally, and corporately as a body? Thank you that you're with us. Would you speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I don't know how many of you have uh, heard or read the recent news about Bill Hybels and Willow Creek Church in Barrington, Illinois. But Hybels is, in a sense, the father of the megachurch evangelical movement. And Willow Creek uh, is one of the first megachurches in America. I mean, thousands of people have come to faith through their ministry. They, they have had significant visible fruit in their years as a church. But a few weeks ago, uh, there were a couple of New York Times articles uh, that came out about the number of women and then the number of years where Hybels has been a perpetrator of sexual harassment. And then the covering up and protection of Hybels by leaders within the church. Hybels has now resigned and following this breaking news, much of the current leadership left Willow Creek as well. This is heart-wrenching for me to hear, heart-wrenching for me to read the accounts of these women. And you add on top of that that a few days later, the New York Times broke the story about the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania and over 300 priests who sexually molested over 1,000 children throughout the past several decades. How do spiritual leaders get to these places? There are countless stories of pastors, church leaders, whose lives went sideways as they engaged in hidden secret acts of sin. When I hear these stories, it always does two things in my heart. It creates sadness and it creates fear. I get sad for the victims. I get sad for the impact that many have felt through the secret lives of sin by these leaders. I get sad that what God was using for good, the enemy twisted and used for bad. And I also get very afraid one who is a pastor and a leader strikes fear that if not for the grace of God, there go I. And God, would you protect my mind, my heart? Would you protect me from secret sins? Would you protect our church from the temptations of the evil one? The Chicago Tribune put out an article this week titled, Willow Creek and America's Roll Call of Disgrace. It was, it was a, a convicting article. The article states that these scandals don't just torch the lives of individuals and reputations, but they scorch institutions for generations. That generations will remember Willow Creek 
and they will think about Hybels and the many women who were sexually harassed. Generations will remember the leaders of the the Catholic Church in Pennsylvania who covered up over 1,000 children sexually molested over seven decades. Generations will hear about the institution of Michigan State University, and they will remember the predator, Dr. Larry Nasser and the many women who were abused. And the question that everyone asks is, how did this happen? The question that these institutions ask themselves is, how did we allow this to happen? And the article with a punch says this, there is a culture of vigilance to detect these actions or there is not. There is a culture of vigilance to detect these actions or there is not. And what I took that to mean for me and for us is that there is either a culture of vigilance in my life, in your life, and in this church to detect and to repent of our sin or there's not. There's a culture of vigilance that expresses itself through a lifestyle of constant, daily, continual repentance or there's not. And God forbid that there's not. For if there is not, we're sitting ducks for the enemy to pick us off to lead to our and the church's disgrace. I don't care how much good we do. I don't care the impact we have. For without repentance, we're sitting ducks. And then a watching world will look on with rightful disgrace. We either have a continual lifestyle of repentance or we don't. And if we don't, sin comes creeping into our lives. Marriages start falling apart. Addictions start running rampant. Relationship with God loses its intimacy and its joy. And instead of truth in our inward being, there's falsehood. And instead of wisdom in the secret heart, there's foolishness. Psalm 51 is one of the best places in all the Bible to understand repentance. Psalm 51 was written about a a year after David, king of Israel, had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah and After this affair, David sends Uriah to the front lines of battle so that he'll be killed. And and here is King David, the unfaithful adulterer and murderer. So just let me add here that sin does not always feel like sin. Sin does not always feel bad. David, in committing adultery, felt like a passionate lover. David, in committing murder, felt like a powerful king. Bill Hybels, these Catholic priests, I guarantee you they felt power and pleasure. Sin can feel good for a moment, but in the end it leads to destruction. David goes on with his normal life after adultery and murder until the prophet Nathan Nathan comes and confronts him. The prophet Nathan comes to David, tells him a story about a little lamb that was stolen from a poor man and then given to a rich man for a feast. And at this, David becomes outraged at the man who stole the lamb. And he says, this man deserves to die. And Nathan looks at David and says, you're the man. You're this man. And at that point, David's house comes crashing down. And his world is rocked. And finally, he's deeply convicted of his sin. And at that point, he pins this incredible psalm of repentance. Now, before I get into the things I want to look about repentance, I have to have another aside. I have to say right here that without Nathans in our lives, we're dead in the water. 
without good friends that we have in our lives that know our deepest secrets, good friends that can call us out and help us see our blind spots, good friends that will call us out of hiding and out of lying, without these deep friendships, we will never be vigilant enough in our repentance. We need Nathans. Here's the first thing I want us to see about repentance is that repentance is a confession of personal sin. It's a confession of personal sin. We see this in verses one through four. Look at verse one, David prays, have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. It's a confession of personal, it's my sin, it's your sin. And we see that there are three parts of every individual which can either lead us to sin or can lead us to repentance and obedience with God. Our mind, our will, and our heart. Our mind, our will, and our heart. Look at verse 4 and we see first our mind. David says, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, David knows what is right or wrong in God's sight. David knows the truth. And he owns his failure to live and walk into the truth. Repentance is a confession that we've believed a lie. That our minds were set on things below, not on things above. Sin always involves a mind problem. What we think, what we believe, what we put into our mind matters. The second part of every individual is our will. David says, I have sinned. I've sinned. David doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't point to others or to circumstances. David owns that he willingly walked in sin. True repentance is taking full responsibility. We cannot say, yeah, yeah, I was wrong, but I'm justified because of so-and-so or because of such-and-such. It's only when David takes full responsibility that he begins to change. The third part of every individual is our heart. It's our heart. David... And for a moment, thought sex with Bathsheba would make him a great lover. And that murdering Uriah would make him feel like a powerful king. David thought for a time that this was the better life instead of walking in communion and fellowship with God. Repentance is achieving emotional distaste against your sin. It's hating your personal sin. I mean, David proclaims in verse 15, open my lips and my mouth shall proclaim your praise. Verse 18, build up the walls of Jerusalem. David, in this psalm, goes from a man who's low as low can go, adulterer, murderer, to a man now filled with joy, confidence, and leadership. How did he do that? He came to hate his sin. Not hating himself, he's hating his sin. Repentance is not self-loathing, is hatred of personal sin. Here's the second thing we see about repentance. It's always oriented toward God. It's always oriented toward God. Verse four again, David writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Did David sin against Bathsheba and Uriah? Of course he did. But he's most grieved because he sinned against God. David knows that what he has done is evil in God's sight. And this is what breaks his heart. Have you ever wondered why there's some people who, who can rob banks and murder people and never feel guilty and they should feel guilty? 
And then there are others who feel guilty and upset over small things, and they shouldn't feel guilty. How do we know what's true or false guilt? What's the plumb line? What's the edge or the rule that helps us determine what is true or false? I was able last weekend to go to a movie. My family was out of town, not this past, but the weekend before. My family was out of town, and I love a good movie. And I love going to the movie theater by myself when I can. It does not happen very often, but I was sitting in the movie theater eating some M&Ms before the, the movie was going to start, and commercials started to roll, and on comes the new Diet Coke commercial. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but I can't remember the actress's name, but she pops on, and she has a Diet Coke in hand. She goes, Diet Coke makes me feel good. Life is short. You want to live in a yurt? Live it up. You want to run a marathon? Not sure you why, but not sure why you would, but you can. Just do you. Whatever that is, just do you. Have a Diet Coke because you can. Just do you. This is our society's plumb line. This is our culture's rule and edge. But serial killers have been doing this for a long time. Bill Hybels and Catholic Priest and Larry Nasser did this. Our hearts cannot always be our guides. The plumb line of what is right does not come from our hearts being our guide. It doesn't come from doing right in your parents' eyes either. I don't have time to get into that one, but I just want to drop it on you. <laughs> it comes from knowing what is right and wrong in God's sight. We can feel right or wrong for all kinds of reasons. David says true guilt, true repentance comes from knowing that we've done evil in God's sight. Let me give you two indicators of a heart that looks repentant. It's not truly repentant. This is someone who feels guilt for their sin, but for other reasons than doing wrong in God's sight. And Christians, we, we're really good at this one. Others have called this false repentance, false guilt. We're good at this one. Here's the first indicator. When your heart is grieved more by your failure than it is that you've sinned against God. There is a conviction that needs to happen with our sin. But if you think conviction and self-loathing are the same thing, you're mistaken. Beating yourself up for failing and not doing more, not being good enough is not repentance. I became a Christian in high school and I started writing my prayers in, in journals in college and I have many notebooks of, of my prayers and I, can, I can't tell you how many times I prayed and wrote out, God, I'm so sorry that I've sinned I'm so sorry that I failed. God, I promise I will never do that again. The, the hundreds of times I, prom I, I promise you, God, I will not do it again. And I did it again. And I felt like a failure and I beat myself up more each time I failed. This type of prayer, though it sounds contrite, is not contrite. This is more about self than it is about God. More about our failure than it is about sinning against God. The good news about the gospel is that we don't measure up. You don't measure up. I don't measure up. We continue to fail, which is why repentance and turning to Jesus is key. Here's a second indicator of an unrepentant heart, false repentance. When your heart is grieved more by the consequences of your sin than sinning against God. You're more grieved by the consequences. All of you know this experience. When you've sinned and there have been consequences because sin has ripple effect. It's either people have been hurt, circumstances changed, and it should grieve us, but not more than breaking God's heart. 
feeling like a failure and then behaving better so that there are better consequences will not lead to a continual lifestyle of repentance. Both of these are all about you or about me. It's about the individual, not about God. I love Jesus' interaction with Peter before he's heading to the cross in Luke 22. When Jesus looks at Peter and he tells Peter, hey, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter says, I will not. I will not fail you. What happens? Peter ends up denying Jesus three times. And then Luke 22, verse 61, the Lord turned, looked at Peter, and Peter remembered what Jesus said. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. It's repentance. The look of the Lord in the midst of Peter's sin led him to weep bitterly over his sin that he could confess, I have sinned against my Lord. Jesus was headed to the cross. It was not a look of condemnation unto Peter. It was a look of love. This is what Jesus was going to the cross to forgive. So what Jesus was going to the cross to die for. So I hope you know that when Jesus looks at you, by faith in him, there is a superabundance of love and mercy that flows from the cross unto you. That Jesus died because of our sin. He laid down his life for you and for me. It's not a look of condemnation that he gives us. It's a look of love. It's until that look of love breaks our heart. It's in that place that we then turn away from sin to the one who embraces us and extends his grace. And then in that moment, verses 7 to 10 happens. It's a cry out of, wash me, God. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Do what only you can do. And when we're in that place, this brings me to my last point about repentance. When we're in that place of repentance, it brings forth blessing for you and for the community. Look at verse 12. David prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy. True repentance leads to joy. Out of our grief comes joy in what God has done for us. This is why we confess sin every Sunday. And then we're reminded of God's love and grace and forgiveness and the assurance of pardon. Because if we want to be filled with joy, then we must learn to grieve our sin. But for every time we look at our sin, we must at least take tenfold looks to the cross of Jesus and see the Savior who laid down his life for us. Now catch this about repentance. I love this, Psalm 51, that the blessing of repentance is not just personal. It's not just that he forgives my sin and that I receive joy, but it's communal. It benefits the community. Verse 13, David writes, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and then sinners will return to you. Repentance leads to powerful witness to an unbelieving world. Now, those who are skeptical of Christianity and some of you here might be in, in that camp, and we're glad you're here, and you could attest to this. Skeptics can, can smell self-righteous, smug Christianity. Those who think they've got it together and act like they're good. But what a watching world needs, what we all need to see is repentant Christians confessing imperfection and struggle, 
for weakness, struggle, and imperfection is humanity's common denominator. But then those who are asking questions about Christianity can then see us as Christians in the church turn in our weakness and rejoice in Jesus and his work on our behalf that produces humility and joy and be pointed and drawn to the one who gave his life for them. In verse 18, we see how this individual prayer of David becomes the corporate prayer for Israel. It's a prayer for Zion, for the city, which should be our prayer, Christ Central, for our city, for this city of Durham, to do good to our church, do good to this city, cause it to flourish, cause, it to be, cause us to be a blessing. And the only way we will be a blessing is if we walk in repentance, trusting Jesus and pointing people to him. The sin of one, like Hybels, can bring disgrace to the whole church. But the repentance of one can lead to a community of repentance, which then leads to blessing and the flourishing and the good of a city. Christ Central, repentance, it is the greatest spiritual power we have. Repentance is what unleashes the Holy Spirit to work in and through us. Repentance is what will lead other people who do not know Jesus to finally trust Jesus. Repentance is what will bring people that are different together into a genuine community that loves one another and is united around the commonality of our brokenness and of a Savior who loves us. Repentance is the greatest gift God gives his people. Someone has said that the church is the only club in the world where the only qualification for joining it and staying in it is that one be unqualified. Do you feel unqualified? If you're here and you do, hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you're here and you think, man, I'm too bad to be part of this church or to become a Christian, Please hear me say that repentance is not having to prepare yourself to come to God. Repentance isn't beating yourself up. Repentance is coming to God broken and grieving and boasting in how unqualified we all are and then turning to a Savior that loves us to the depths of who we are. Do I want God to do great things in and through us? Do I, do I pray that God allows us to see our vision and our mission accomplished? You better believe I do. But without repentance, we'll be a bunch of self-righteous people building our own kingdom. And God forbid that. So may God give us the gift of true repentance, individually and corporately. A consistent posture like verse 17, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. From it's this place that we're humbly surrendered, delighting with joy in all that the Lord has done for us. And then it leads us to seek God's glory and God's honor in everything that we do. Let's pray. God, I do ask that you would do what only you can do. Cause your spirit to fall upon us, to open our eyes, to open our mind, to change our will, to change our hearts, to confess our personal sin, to be mostly grieved that we sinned against you. And then out of a place of renewal and joy and hope in the gospel to be a blessing 
to the city of Durham that you've called us to. Thank you that you're with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.